Thank you for listening to the Starburns Audio Podcast Network. We have so many great comedy shows to add to your playlist. Just last week on Starburns Audio, on The Grolic Saves the World, comedian Andrew Orvidal challenges his co-hosts, Ben Broy and Adam Caton Holland, to watch all nine Fast and the Furious movies in one week. On Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone, Tom Hanks tries to win their 100th caller contest and talks about his experience with the coronavirus. This week on The Boogie Monster, Kyle Kinane and Dave Stone discuss fake meat, strange beer mixes, and Dave's got a red bean and rice recipe. On Natch Butte, Jackie shares her quarantine skin woes, including eyelash serum irritation and indoor sunscreen necessities. Search Starburns Audio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcast platform for a full list of our shows, featuring hosts like Dulce Sloan, the Scalar Brothers, and Kyle Ayers. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Starburns Audio. Enjoy the show, and remember, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep laughing. Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the murder of Maddie Clifton. But first, your true crime headlines. The Philadelphia District Attorney's Office has filed charges against a 27-year-old city woman for allegedly spitting on two people at a specialty food store. 27-year-old Jacqueline McBride has been charged in connection with the incidents, which both occurred at De Bruno Brothers Gourmet Food Store. In one of the incidents, Ms. McBride allegedly spit on another shopper during an argument about social distancing. Workers recognized McBride as the same woman who also spat on a store employee a few days earlier. Police released store surveillance video and asked for the public's help in identifying McBride, who was quickly identified and arrested. She has been charged with two counts each of terroristic threats, simple assault, and harassment. She is scheduled to return to court in early June. A security guard was shot and killed after asking a customer to wear a mask inside the store. The incident occurred at the Family Dollar Store in Flint, Michigan, where 43-year-old Calvin Munnerlin worked as a security guard. When a woman and her teenage daughter entered the store, Munnerlin instructed the teenage girl to wear a mask, as ordered by the state's governor. The teenager left the store, and her mother got into a verbal altercation with Munnerlin, who then told the woman to also leave the store. The woman, 45-year-old Charmel Teague, returned home and told her husband about the incident. Her husband and her 23-year-old son drove to the store, confronted the security guard, and shot him in the head. He was rushed to a local hospital where he died from his injuries. Charmel Teague, her husband Larry Teague, and her son Ramonye Bishop are all facing felony firearms charges, and Bishop is also facing a first degree murder charge. Charmel Teague is in custody and awaiting arraignment, and police are searching for her husband and son. A Dallas police officer was arrested in his patrol car for driving while intoxicated last week. Officer Sean Mock was arrested for DWI around 2.15 a.m. 
while sitting in a parked, marked squad car, according to a police spokesperson. He was on duty at the time of the arrest. Mock has been a member of the force since 2009 and is employed as a patrol officer assigned to the city's Northwest Division. Mock was booked into the Dallas County Jail and was released after posting $500 cash bond. He was placed on administrative leave pending the outcome of an investigation, which will be conducted by the Internal Affairs Division of the Dallas PD. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the tragic story of Maddie Clifton. But first, a quick break. Life, as I think we're all finding out, is often stranger than fiction. And true crime stories are some of the strangest of them all. Real-life nightmares that even Hollywood couldn't dream up. If you're as endlessly fascinated by criminal minds and the heinous acts committed by real people as we are, then you need to check out Sundance Now. Sundance Now is a commercial-free streaming service with a killer selection of true crime that you won't find anywhere else. Brought to you by the groundbreaking storytellers at AMC Network, Sundance Now features docu-series that cover everything from the bizarrely unheard of to the notorious. Some time ago, we told you the story of a small-town American bully, Ken Rex McElroy, and a community that decided to take the law into its own hands. Now you can watch the story unfold. No one saw a thing examines his unsolved mysterious murder in Missouri in 1981 and the 60 eyewitnesses who won't talk. Then there's Jonestown, Terror in the Jungle, the four-part documentary executive produced by Leonardo DiCaprio, which explores the infamous Jonestown Massacre and the rise of cult leader Jim Jones. Up next on my list is the preppy murder Death in Central Park, the documentary series that vividly re-examines the 1986 murder of Jennifer Levin, a story about the lifestyle of New York's privileged prep school kids, sexism, elitism, a flawed justice system, and a tabloid media that blamed the victim. Discover your next binge-worthy show on Sundance Now. Sundance Now is available for as low as $4.99 a month. That's a steal for the exclusive content you'll get. Just download the app or watch online, and you can start streaming on all your favorite devices. Try Sundance Now free for 30 days by going to SundanceNow.com and using the promo code MM. That's your first 30 days free at SundanceNow.com code MM. Welcome back to Murder Minute. It was Election Day, November 3, 1998, in Jacksonville, Florida, and citizens all over the country were standing in line at the polls to cast their vote for the next President of the United States. But to eight-year-old Maddie Clifton, it was just another Tuesday. At around 5 p.m., while the grown-ups were still at work at the polls or glued to their television sets, Maddie, a tomboy who liked dancing and drumming, but especially loved basketball, 
and her older sister, Jessie, went out to play with the other neighborhood kids. At around 6 p.m., the sun had set, and her mother, Sheila, called Maddie and her sister, Jessie, back in for dinner. Jessie came back, but Maddie did not. Jessie told her mother that she hadn't been with her younger sister and didn't know where she was. It wasn't long before Sheila Clifton called 911 to report Maddie missing. It was like she shut the door and just poof, vanished off the face of the earth, her father Steve told CBS. The Cliftons and their neighbors grabbed their flashlights and searched for Maddie late into the night. Among them were Steve and Missy Phillips and their son, Josh. Over the next several days, 400 strong search parties of local volunteers searched for the little girl. Flyers were distributed throughout Jacksonville, and Maddie Clifton's face was soon plastered across every television. Even America's Most Wanted offered to broadcast her story. A reward was offered, $50,000. Soon, it doubled. But there was still no sign of Maddie. Investigators knew that Maddie had most likely been abducted by someone she knew, someone nearby. As they looked into the neighbors, one of them stood out, a man who had been arrested over a decade earlier for multiple sexual assault cases, but had been released when the charges were dropped. The suspect failed a lie detector test when questioned about Maddie's disappearance, but succeeded in providing an alibi. Then, on the seventh day, the search for Maddie Clifton abruptly ended. On the morning of November 10th, 1998, across the street from the Clifton home, Missy Phillips went into her son Josh's room to tidy up. That morning, I decided to get a head start on helping my 14-year-old son Joshua to clean his room. Mrs. Phillips later wrote, His father and I had both been nagging him for weeks. Josh and his father left the house just after 7 a.m. that morning, and I had a few hours until I had to report to my job. I walked into my son's room and shook my head at the mess. As I pondered where to begin, I noticed a wet spot on the floor at the corner of Josh's soft side waterbed and groaned, Don't tell me the bed is leaking. I touched the corner of the mattress and it was soaked. I decided to investigate the cause of the leak rather than tackle the cleaning. As I lifted the corner of the mattress, I noticed a white sock and figured it was one of Josh's, so I started to pull on it, but it wouldn't budge. About that time, I noticed black electrical tape holding the black frame of the pedestal together and surmised the bed must have been leaking for quite some time and apparently Josh had attempted to hold it together with the tape so that he wouldn't get in trouble. The tape freely pulled away from the pedestal, and the wood gave way just enough that I could at least see the sock better. I grabbed it, and this time, felt something else. As I pulled the pedestal slightly away, the sock fell down, and I felt something cold. 
It could not be what I thought it was. Yet, somehow, I knew exactly what I had found. The missing little girl from across the street. I was in shock, and my first thought was to call my husband at work to be with me, but he wasn't at his desk yet, and I could only leave a frantic message on his voicemail to call me immediately, that it was an emergency. I paced the floor, clutching the phone to my chest, willing it to ring, but it didn't. The police had been in our neighborhood for a week. All I had to do was walk out my front door and get an officer to come back with me. It seemed surreal walking out my front door. What was I doing? I was about to implicate my own son in this horrifying discovery. As I walked down my driveway, I glanced over at the Clifton's house and realized right then, at that very moment, they still had hope. But in a few moments, they would know their little girl was never coming home again. Across the street, the Cliftons soon noticed police putting up crime scene tape around the Phillips house. Josh was in his geography class at school when he was called to the office, met by two detectives, and taken into custody. Mr. and Mrs. Phillips met their 14-year-old son at the police station. In the interrogation room, Steve Phillips told his son to tell the detectives the truth. Steve asked Josh if he knew what he was there for. Josh said that he didn't. Steve then said, Your mom found Maddie in your room. With his father by his side, Josh confessed and described to police what he claimed happened the day that eight-year-old Maddie was killed. According to Josh, Maddie came over to his house and wanted to play. Josh told her that he had to do his chores, but she persisted. Josh said okay, but told Maddie that he could only play for a few minutes because his father would soon be getting home and would be angry if Maddie was there. Josh told police that around 5.15 p.m., he and Maddie were playing baseball in the backyard. Maddie pitched the ball to Josh. He hit it, and it struck her in the head, causing a big gash, he said. Maddie then fell down started to cry and scream. Josh panicked. He knew that his father would be home soon and feared that he would be angry. He picked Maddie up, took her inside the house into his room, put her on the floor, and strangled her with a phone cord for 15 minutes. When she continued making noise, he became even more scared. When we are not at home, he's not allowed to go out and play, his father explained. He's not allowed to let anybody in. In an attempt to silence her, Josh hit Maddie in the head with his baseball bat. Then he pulled out his pocket knife, stabbed her twice in the throat, and stuffed her under the base of his waterbed. When his father returned home, Josh behaved normally, but then returned to his bedroom when he heard Maddie moaning. 
When he discovered that Maddie was still alive, he removed the mattress and stabbed her 11 more times. Joshua Earl Patrick Phillips was arrested for the murder of 8-year-old Maddie Clifton. Four days after Josh's arrest, Maddie Clifton was buried. As the Cliftons mourned for their daughter, Josh's parents tried to understand what could have made their 14-year-old son commit such a heinous and violent act. To everyone who knew him, Josh seemed like a completely normal kid. I don't know the monster, Edwina Harris, one of Josh's teachers, told CBS. I knew this silly little boy in my class. He was funny, she said. He made the other kids laugh. For nearly nine months, the teenager sat in an isolation cell at a pretrial detention facility awaiting his trial. He would be tried as an adult for first-degree murder. His parents were permitted to visit for two hours on Thursdays and half an hour on Sundays, speaking to their son through a phone. In the early 90s, many states, including Florida, changed their laws, making it easier to try juveniles as adults, putting the emphasis on punishment rather than rehabilitation. To put any 14-year-old, not only mine, but any 14-year-old in prison for the rest of their lives Josh's father, Steve Phillips, said, That's just ludicrous. The media made it virtually impossible for Josh to get a fair trial anywhere in this state, Missy Phillips said. The lines of cars driving up and down this little road, people getting out and taking pictures, the damage done to our home and to our vehicles. Tires were slashed, taillights broken, the house was egged, Dead animals, minus their heads, were tossed onto our front walk. Our mail was stolen. I was afraid to be in my house, and equally terrified to leave it. I watched my dog carefully while he was out in the yard, frightened that someone might try to poison him because he was that monster's pet. Tom Bowery, a psychologist, was hired by Josh's attorney to evaluate him. This is not what I would have seen as the typical kind of sociopathic wanting to kill, wanting to maim, deriving pleasure from the pain of others kind of kid, he said. I don't think that's true at all. A second expert hired by Josh's attorneys, a neurologist, found that Josh had bilateral frontal lobe lesions, which can impair judgment, cause panic, and impair a person's ability to comprehend the consequences of their actions. But the judge wouldn't allow this evidence to be presented in court. In July of 1999, Josh's trial began. The evidence against him was overwhelming. The baseball bat, the pocket knife, Josh's own confession. In a move that shocked many, Josh's lawyer, Richard Nichols, called no witnesses. Instead, the entire defense was a closing argument. Josh's attorney argued that the murder wasn't premeditated 
and pleaded with jurors to convict the teenager of manslaughter. We're not here to act out some form of vengeance, he said. We're not here to act as a bunch of well-dressed vigilantes. The autopsy showed that Maddie had been beaten over the head, stabbed twice in the neck, and at least nine times in the chest. The evidence shows us there was an accident that deteriorated into panic and then murder. State Attorney Harry Shorstein disagreed. Josh's story, he said, didn't hold up against the physical evidence. There was no blood on the ball that Josh claimed busted Maddie's face while they were playing, no blood in the yard, and no dirt on Maddie's body or clothes. He pointed out that when Maddie's body was discovered beneath Josh's bed, her pants and underpants had been removed, and that according to her sister, Joshua had previously talked to Maddie and her sister about sex. Though her body showed no signs of rape, the prosecution suggested that the murder may have been sexually motivated. The trial lasted just two days. On Wednesday, July 8, 1999, after two hours' deliberation, the jury returned with a verdict. Joshua Earl Patrick Phillips was guilty of the first-degree murder of eight-year-old Maddie Clifton. This case was open and shut, Prosecutor Shorstein said. There aren't any great explanations. This is a day of justice for Maddie, Sheila Clifton said outside the courthouse. That piece of my heart that's gone is waiting on the other side, waiting on the other side for us. After the verdict was handed down, Prosecutor Harry Shorstein revealed a detail to the press that had been ruled inadmissible in court. In the half-hour preceding the murder, Josh was looking at violent pornographic websites on his computer. Shorstein believed that the photos Josh looked at prior to Maddie's arrival at the house may have triggered his violence. Maddie's mother, Sheila, agreed. I believe had he not had access to the materials he had, that Maddie would be sitting here right now. Circuit Judge Charles Arnold set a sentencing date, August 12th, 1999. When the day came, Maddie's father addressed Josh Phillips. To Joshua Phillips, we have but one thing to say. How dare you? How dare you take Maddie from us for no reason? She was a beautiful gift from God to us all, and your friend, and you brutally murdered her. May God rest your soul. Fifteen-year-old Joshua Earl Patrick Phillips was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Had he been sixteen years old, he would have been eligible for the death penalty. This hearing brings a sad end to one of the most tragic proceedings of one of the most heinous crimes in our city's history, Prosecutor Shorstein said. 
Everyone has suffered. Everyone has lost. Only the system of justice has prevailed. Judge Arnold addressed Josh Phillips. I do not perceive you to be a child. Your monstrous act in causing the death of Maddie Clifton made you an adult. I'm certain that on Judgment Day you, Joshua Earl Phillips, will be given a far harsher sentence than I can impose. Then, quoting Christ's words from Luke 17, Arnold said, It would be better if a millstone were hung round your neck and that you were thrown into the sea than to cause harm to a child. Josh and his family said nothing and left the courtroom. Later, when asked by 48 Hours why he thought this happened, Josh replied, I don't know. I don't think I have the answer. Maybe I should get some kind of counseling or something to find out what's wrong with me. When asked what he would say to Maddie's parents if he had the chance, Josh said, I'd beg for forgiveness. That's all I could say. There's nothing else I could say. I guess I'd say I'm sorry, but that wouldn't be enough. Ten years after the murder, in 2008, 24-year-old Josh Phillips was interviewed by the Florida Times Union. In 2012, after a series of failed appeals led by his mother, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that sentencing juveniles to mandatory life in prison without parole is unconstitutional. We have to start recognizing that children are not just short adults, said Florida Senator Stephen Geller. What happens if an eight-year-old shoots somebody? Do you put them in prison for the rest of their life? Under current Florida law, you can. I'm sorry, I think that's wrong. In September of 2016, Joshua Phillips was granted a new sentencing hearing as a result of retroactive application of the Supreme Court's ruling, which declared his sentence, mandatory life in prison without parole, unconstitutional as a juvenile offender. At his resentencing hearing, Maddie's mother, Sheila, spoke. We were raising our girls in a Christian home where we prayed every day. What we didn't know was that the devil himself had moved in right across the street. The same devil that picked up his flashlight and proceeded to look for her, knowing good and well where she was the whole time. The defendant now wants a second chance to live a second life. What does Maddie get to appeal her death sentence to? Should he ever be released from prison, I pray that I will no longer be on this earth. In November of 2017, Judge Waddell Wallace resentenced 33-year-old Joshua Phillips to life in prison. It is appropriate to impose a life sentence in a case that's a truly unusual case. Irredeemable depravity, or the worst of the worst, 
or circumstances that are truly unique and different from the ordinary. Wallace said, I believe this is one of the most rare and unusual crimes that warrants life in prison. The actions of the defendant in this case reflect characteristics not generally found in criminal behavior types of juveniles. He targeted a helpless victim and carefully planned his actions toward her. His actions in inflicting injuries causing death, particularly in silencing Maddie Clifton by repeated stabbings after he had dismissed her as dead, as well as his cold and callous demeanor in hiding her decomposing body, represent a level of depravity that cannot be explained or attributed to immaturity, impetuosity, or recklessness or headless risk-taking. The crime committed by the defendant is indeed the uncommon case that qualifies for a life sentence. On December 17, 2019, this sentence of life in prison was upheld by Florida's First District Court of Appeal. Joshua Phillips is currently serving his sentence in the Cross City Correctional Institution. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.